uh, to all of you at Bethel, and uh, whether you're on the second floor, on the third floor, or if you're watching us remotely uh, from a distance, I want to say welcome, and uh, we're delighted that you are with us in one way or another. My name is Eric Barton, and I get to be one of the pastors here at the downtown campus of Bethel Bible Church. And as Mike has already mentioned, it's uh, a very exciting time for me, I hope for all of Bethel. We're starting a brand new sermon series this morning, and we hope and pray that, Lord willing, it'll take us all the way through the spring semester. And as you can probably see on screen, we're going to start the book of Ephesians. And we start this with a great deal of fear and trembling, with a great deal of uh, humility necessarily, because Ephesians, it has been said, is the crown and the climax of Pauline theology. In other words, where Romans was his theological masterpiece, Ephesians is sort of like the literary masterpiece. I remember famously when I was um, in seminary, one of my old favorite professors, a guy named Professor Howard Hendricks. By that time, he was literally older than Cole, and he had an eye patch, and he was as crusty as they came. And he told us that famously, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher in England in the mid-20th century, one of the most famous orators and preachers of the gospel, that he had famously preached Ephesians for 10 years. And then Prof. Hendricks said, you ain't Martin Lloyd-Jones. Don't do that. And so we're not going to be in Ephesians for 10 years. We're going to be in Ephesians hopefully through this spring semester, and we're going to see what the Lord has for us. The book of Ephesians was John Calvin's favorite book of the Bible. And I know for some of you who are the same age as John Calvin, Tom Ramey, he's also, Ephesians is also your favorite book. So we hope and pray that the Lord will speak to us, among us, as we study this amazing book. If you're not in the habit of praying for whoever's preaching, I hope and ask that you will pray for those of us who are preaching, because it's such a marvelous, marvelous book to walk through. The book of Ephesians was written sometime in, let's say, A.D. 60. As Paul is in prison in Rome, his first Roman imprisonment. It's one of the four prison epistles. He will write Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and even a little personal note called Philemon. He writes all of this sitting in Rome. If you read the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28, verse 31, the last thing you hear is that Paul is sitting in prison, his first imprisonment, and this is when he writes all of these letters. He's in prison for two years on his own expense. And so we're going to look at this letter that Paul writes to this church in Ephesus while he's sitting in Rome. Ephesians is Paul's great grand ecclesiology. That is, it's his expression, his explanation of the church. Our working theme for the series of Ephesians is grace made visible. Grace made, you might say, manifest or materially discerned. That's our theme for Ephesians this semester. Grace made visible. Ephesians is this wonderful, balanced book. The first three chapters are all about doctrine. The second three chapters are all about doing. So we say this all the time, that there's three chapters of the indicative, that is, what God has done. And then there are three chapters on the imperative, that is, what we are now to do. So God has, we do. We put it this way, these first three chapters are about our position in Christ. Mid-spring and further, the last three chapters are about our practice on earth. Position in Christ that always precedes our practice on earth. We must never get those things out of order. So if I may be so bold 
and to assume some privilege here. As far as any of us is concerned, I firmly believe that Ephesians is pretty much the most important thing going on in the universe right now. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to us through this book, by his spirit, as his people, through this study. I also believe that Ephesians is precisely what we as a church need right now. Middle of January 2021. There is so much going on in our country, in our community, in our church, perhaps in your family, that nobody predicted, nobody could have seen. And one of the primary struggles that we've been trying to help people answer is, what is the church supposed to do and be in the midst of all this craziness? I mean, the last, oh, I don't know, 10, 11 months or so, we've seen infection, insurrection, impeachment, and now an inauguration. It just gets crazier and crazier. So what is the church supposed to do and be in the middle of all that? And, of course, the answer is the gospel. The gospel. The greatest common denominator, that we would be givers of the gospel. And so perhaps more than any other biblical city, Ephesus resembles our current context. There's a famous old saying, perhaps you've heard it, that said that all roads lead to Rome. You've heard this. But an equally familiar expression at that time was, whereas all roads lead to Rome, all roads come from Ephesus. It was the eastern capital of culture and the economy and all those things. It was about 250,000 people. It made it the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It had a theater that would seat 25,000 people. It had an agora that was absolutely immense. The agora was like the town market, the mall, the civic center, the the communal square, and it was a three-story edifice. It was absolutely immense. It's on the west coast of what is today modern Turkey. Now, two-thirds of our New Testament is either written to or from what is today modern Turkey, and much of that is Ephesus. The Apostle John writes his gospel and his three epistles essentially to or from Ephesus. First and Second Timothy are written to the pastor, Timothy, at Ephesus. Of course, the book of Ephesians is written by Paul to the people in Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, written to those people there in Ephesus. And Paul spent more than three years in Ephesus, more than any other place he ever spent time. And it's probably during that three years that he was instrumental or at least involved in planting the other churches that we see in Revelation, those seven churches. Some crazy things happened in Ephesus. We don't know really what happened there. We don't know exactly what went on. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, Paul says that he fought beasts in Ephesus and then makes this sort of really weird like gladiator reference that's also hooking back into Isaiah. So Paul, while he's in Ephesus, you know, he's making tents, he's teaching, he's wrestling lions perhaps. I don't know. But Ephesus was a kind of a wild, rough-and-tumble kind of a place. A lot happened there. And so in a lot of ways, you see, Ephesus is us. It was an incredible place at an incredible time. It was vastly multicultural. It was economically strong. It was a political and cultural center of the world, in many ways even more than Rome was at that time. It was both secular, driven pretty much by the pragmatic and the whatever work, but also deeply spiritual in a lot of ways, in a lot of extreme ways, as a matter of fact. And Ephesus is now gone. It's just ruins. And so Ephesus is a, is a cautionary tale for many of us. Ephesus was the position of power. 
in pretty much any way you can think about what power is. And so this is going to set us up for our big idea this morning as we crack the case on the book of Ephesians. Our big idea for this morning goes like this. Power is the force to make something happen. Now this is increasingly important for us in our culture, our community today. Our, our country, all of these things, power is the big, big question. Who has power? Who's using that power to afflict me, to upset me? Who's taking my power? What are they going to do with all that power? But I hope we all realize and accept and acknowledge and appreciate that there's nothing new under the sun. The Apostle Paul sits in Rome and writes this letter to the Ephesian church. And by the way, all the surrounding churches. He tells them in Colossians, I hope you read my letter that's coming from Laodicea. Because he had circulated this letter around. He wanted all of them to read it. He wants to explain to them. As he sits in prison in Rome, in the center of the Roman Empire, oh, let me explain to you what real power actually is. So if you've got your Bibles, we're just going to do a very quick introduction this morning. Please turn to the book of Ephesians Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes, or he's dictating at least, as he's more than likely chained to a Roman praetorian guard in Rome under house arrest. So more than likely he's saying these things out loud in the hearing of this Roman soldier that is guarding him. Keep that in mind. That's important. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostle, apostolos, means he was sent, but not just he was sent. This is his, his formal office, his title. He has a specific role, which means we know from Galatians and Corinthians that an apostle is one who has seen the risen Lord Jesus and gotten direct information, instruction, and revelation from Jesus. Paul is an apostle. And, importantly, by the will of God, Paul says, I didn't choose this. This chose me. I was fat and happy sitting in Jerusalem studying as a Pharisee of Pharisees when I got knocked off my horse on the way to Damascus. I didn't choose this. God chose this. This is his doing. And then he does what Paul always does. He deposits identity. He reminds them who they are principally. That word identity, it simply means, and it has the idea of the thing that is always true about us. So listen to how Paul addresses these people in Ephesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Please don't miss that. While Paul says that, he's chained to a Roman centurion or a Roman guard, and he says, to the saints who are at Ephesus. Their spiritual identity is actually more important than their national citizenship. Can I just roll that out there awkwardly and let us all chew on that for a moment? Their position in Christ is actually a superseder of their national citizenship. The citizenship is merely a... a, a designation of geography. To the saints, the holy ones, those who are gods, who just so happen to be in Ephesus and are faithful, or more than likely, who are believers, who are believing in, and then finally this great grand identity statement, in Christ Jesus. I'd say this is sort of the, the sub-theme of Paul in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He will say this 27 times in the book of Ephesians alone, that we are in Christ Jesus. That is our location. That's really our address. Your name tag says, hello, my name is Eric in Christ. And that's the way God will refer to me for all eternity. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace. Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit later, but this is not just a customary greeting, although it is. It's a declaration of power. 
Every government, every policy, every program, every person is ultimately trying at some level to accomplish or effect peace. And Paul's going to say what actually effects peace, you want power, the force to make something happen, it's actually grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Importantly, we'll talk about this in the weeks to come, in the mind of the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ is God. He's not a hero, not a great teacher, not a swell rabbi, not a pathetic martyr. He is God of God. Now that's important because he is the wielder of all power. The book of Revelation will call him the pantocrator, the holder, the dispenser of all power. And power is the force to make something happen. Now, as Mike mentioned earlier, we at Bethel, we like to study through an entire book of the Bible expository preaching. We want to know what is the point of that passage that hopefully is then therefore the point of our preaching. We want to know what did it mean to them there and then. What was Paul really wanting for the people in Ephesus to understand that's way more important than just what you and I get out of Ephesians. What did Paul mean for them there and then to understand? And for that, we have to have context. Praise be to God, we have amazing context. We have the book of Acts, written by a Greek, a Gentile. In the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we get this sort of side-by-side. As Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, Luke gives us the historical narrative and tells us all that went on in Ephesus. We have to have that as a backdrop. So this morning is sort of just the introduction to the introduction. So if you've got your Bible still, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. We're going to walk through Acts 19 because I'm convinced if you don't do this and you just study Ephesians, you miss Ephesians. You have to understand what's happening in the context and the culture to understand the force of some of the things that Paul is sharing. So in Acts chapter 19, Paul in Acts chapter 18 will have just finished his second missionary journey. You might remember on his second missionary journey, he's in what is today modern Turkey, and he says, I'm going to go to Ephesus. And the Spirit of God says, no, you're not. He says, fine, then I'll go up north. I'll go to Bithynia. The Spirit of Jesus says, nice try. No, you're not. And he has a vision, and a man from Macedonia, which is northern Greece, says, we need you to come over here. And so Paul goes to Philippi. He plants the church in Philippi. He then goes to Thessalonica. He then goes to Athens, and then he goes to Corinth, and then he goes to Ephesus. So God gets him to Ephesus ultimately, but in his time, not in Paul's. Paul's there for just a brief moment. He's met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, takes them to Ephesus. Now, that's instructive. Priscilla and Aquila are actually from Pontus. That's in eastern Turkey. But they had gone to Italy, and then they went to Corinth, and then they go to Ephesus. Just to show you that in those days, it was not just village life. People moved around a lot, and they could because of the power and the peace of the Roman Empire. Priscilla and Aquila find themselves in Ephesus, and they meet a guy named Apollos, who's a great, great teacher, a great, great speaker, but he's missing something critical. Priscilla and Aquila spend some time with him, correct his error, and unleash him. He goes on to Corinth. Paul sails back home to Syrian Antioch, spends about three to six months there, and then we don't get a whole lot of pomp and circumstance about this, but at the end of chapter 18, Paul launches his third missionary journey. He goes back through Galatia and Phrygia, that's in modern Turkey, and he strengthens the churches that he already planted. That's an important lesson. You don't just plant a church and leave. He's never just one and done. He always goes back through and blesses them. 
But finally, in Acts chapter 19, we find Paul back in Ephesus. And this time he's going to stay there a very long time. And we're going to begin to see what Luke's trying to show us. The power of the gospel. Because power is the force to make something happen. His gospel, Luke's gospel, all about the birth of the Christ. The book of Acts is all about the birth of the church. And it's the church that is bursting forth this weird collage of Jew and Gentile. Of man and woman of free and slave, all these different people coming together to make the church, and that church is the execution of the power of God in the world. That's interesting. So we're going to walk through this super briefly, Acts chapter 19, and then we're going to apply this, and that'll set the stage for the rest of what we talk about Ephesians for the rest of the semester. So chapter 19 of Acts, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. We don't get any detail there. That's a long way. That's a really long way to go all the way across modern, what is today modern Turkey and to wind up on the west coast, which is where Ephesus is. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. It just so happened, Luke will say over and over again. It just so happened that Paul finds some disciples there in Ephesus. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. Huh, that's interesting. We've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, in the book of Acts, to show the birth of the church, you get four separate baptisms, four separate falling of the Spirit. It is not saying that that is a normative thing that should continue on, that the Spirit's going to fall every time you cook your favorite dish. It's not what that's saying. The Spirit falls four times to show, hey, it's happening, it's happening, it's happening, it's happened. The church age has inaugurated, it has begun. This is the final stage. Acts chapter 19, we're going to meet 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They're Jewish guys who are following John the Baptist. And Paul says, hey, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit? And they said, the Holy who? We don't even know about such a thing. Paul says, ah, it's the mark of what it means to be a Christian in this age. Not that you were not a God-fearer or a follower of God, but in this age, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul will say that in Romans chapter 8. And so he says, do you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And Paul says, he has come. So Paul's unleashing gospel power on them. They were identified by a man, John the Baptist. They were identified by a teaching, this repentance. Jesus says, no, you need to be identified as in Christ. And so he baptizes them. On hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Just so happens there was 12. To show us that the ministry of Jesus takes off in the ancient Near East in Palestine, that is Israel, with 12 disciples. And it breaks forth now in oh, Ephesus of all places. It's where the church has its final stage of transition from the Old Testament law to New Testament grace. And it happens through Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles in Ephesus. There were about 12 men in all. Verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly to the Jew first and then the Gentile. He goes in and he has these orations, these dialogues, these discussions and disputes with the Jewish people there. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But this synagogue in Ephesus of Jewish people wasn't exactly orthodox. 
They were about as fringe Jewish as you get. Archaeology has found all sorts of magic incantations and spells mixed in with menorahs and stars of David. They were totally contextualized in Ephesus. And so into that setting, Paul goes and has all these discussions about the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, that is the the fledgling beginnings of Christianity, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, a school hall, probably not really his name. It was probably a title, Tyrannus. That's not what you want your teacher to be named, as in Tyrannus Rex, right? I mean, probably just the name of this guy's school. Paul teaches there in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that does not mean China and India, that means the Roman province of Asia, which is western Turkey, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's right, because Paul had planted at least those seven churches, perhaps more from Revelation and other areas around, like in Hierapolis and other places. Paul had wanted to go to Ephesus. In Acts chapter 16, God said, I have bigger plans. I have better ideas. Follow my lead. It is thought that Paul would work every morning very early from sunup, and he would make tents, and then from 11 a.m. to about 5 p.m., he would teach every single day except for Saturday. He would teach in the school of Tyrannus, and then after 5 p.m., he would go back to work. It was said of Ephesus there were more people awake at 1 a.m. than at 1 p.m. Because most of the residents, it was hot at that time, would sleep in the middle of the day, kind of like a siesta. And during that 11 to 4, 11 to 5 time period, Paul would teach every single day, discipling and instructing these people as the church bursts forth. Paul shows them gospel power. Now we're going to see something interesting. As the gospel begins to really go forth, it's going to encounter some ghastly power, we might say. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Please notice, God was doing it. God was doing these miracles. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This is supposed to be very similar to what Luke writes about in Luke chapter 8, where the woman who'd been bleeding for many years touches the garment of Jesus and is healed. This is Luke's way of saying the gospel power, the force to make something happen, is now being done through the church. It's a very interesting way that Luke puts this. Verse 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, (laughs) what? Because, you know, you all know some itinerant Jewish exorcists, don't you? Uh, that's not what Jewish people are supposed to be doing, is performing exorcisms. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Ooh, there's a quick little lesson in here. Never outsource your knowledge of Jesus to somebody else. Bad things generally occur. These guys apparently were seven brothers. Their dad was a guy named Sceva, who was somehow a part of the Jewish leadership. And they were business guys. You know, if there's something demonic in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Sons of Sceva, saying it with me. It's a, no, don't do that. These guys, this is how they made their money in Ephesus. And they said, hey, you know what? We're going we're gonna to bolt on and accessorize. We've been having some success, but we've heard this guy named Paul is preaching. We've heard that just the handkerchiefs or the stuff that he wipes his brow with, that's casting out demons. We're going we're gonna to treat this Jesus, his name, 
like a rabbit's foot, like a good luck charm. Never, ever treat Jesus like a good luck charm. I remind all of us, as Paul would, he is God. I adjure you, they would say in verse 13, by the Lord Jesus, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. This is not, this is not good. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus, oh, I know him. And the verb there is, I know him. I know exactly who he is experientially. I know him. And I recognize, or in Paul, I recognize, I'm familiar with him. But who are you? That's never a good question. If a demon asks you that, things are about to get naked. Okay? That's just how that goes. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. Luke's doing a play on words. He subdued them. In the same way that the gospel was subduing other people, this guy subdues the seven sons of Sceva. He overpowered them. He mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That causes a ruckus. Because it's not every Tuesday that there's a bunch of naked Jewish exorcists running down Broadway. I mean, I guess it could happen, but it's not every Tuesday. That causes a stir. But listen what causes the stir. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Why? And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Not just that these guys got whipped naked. Sometimes, by the way, God allows that to happen in your life. When we're treating Jesus like a rabbit's foot, sometimes God allows us to get whipped naked. This must be in Paul's mind as he chuckles, sitting in house arrest in Rome, going, oh, yeah. remember that time those seven dudes got whipped naked? That was awesome. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, spiritual warfare. So we have to have all of this as a backdrop as to what Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians. And this became known to all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Oh, there's power breaking out. Those who were already believers were convicted that they were still hedging their bets. They were still holding back some of their old trinkets. And, well, well, what if my daughter gets sick? I still need to have this little trick up my sleeve. I don't trust God. What if my crops fail? I still need to have this little trick up my sleeve because I don't trust God. But this encounter of power got all their attention. Verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them didn't just put them away for safekeeping. They said, no, 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 no. We're burning these things and in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. This was costly. But God's showing what power is, the force to make something happen. Ephesus was one of the centers of occult and magic. All the little trinkets that they, they produced. God says, oh, you want to see power? I will show you power. Just the handkerchief that falls off of this bald-headed, unibrowed, big-nosed, bow-legged rabbi turned apostle, just his hankies are casting out demons. God's wanting us to understand. Luke wants us to understand where real power comes from. It was costly, verse 19. Moving on to verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Understand what Luke is saying. It is the word of God that was increasing. About 500 years ago in Germany, someone asked Martin Luther how the Reformation spread so quickly, and he laughed. He said, Philip, Melanchthon, and I drank beer in Wittenberg, and the Word of God did it all. But that's a good strategy. Verse 21, 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and then go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also, I must also see Rome. So all these things are happening. We've seen sort of this ghastly power of this demonic encounter. Now we're going to see greedy power. And I want to remind you that I think Ephesus is us. There's all this dabbling in spirituality. There's all this dealing with greed, money, power. Verse 22, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia, that is in Ephesus, for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Luke's way of saying a big kerfuffle, a dust-up happened because of Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. You have to remember, Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship, the Temple to Diana, or Artemis, was one of the seven uh, ancient wonders of the world. It was absolutely enormous. Apparently, some meteor had fallen out of the sky, this big, black, grotesque meteor, and they carved it into the likeness of Artemis, and people would come from all over the world to worship Artemis. And into that setting, under the shadow of that temple, Paul has this experience. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, all these craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And we're starting to see that their economic stability is threatened, and that's when the gloves will come off. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, that's the Roman province of Asia, that's western Turkey, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Can you believe what Paul's saying? You guys, he's saying that the gods that we make with our hands aren't really gods. <laughs> I mean, do you hear the lunacy in that claim? He's saying that the little trinket that I made with my hands isn't really a god. That's because it isn't. It's a little trinket. The gods made with hands are not gods, verse 27. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come in disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she in whom all Asia and the world worship. Please notice, this Artemis, this alleged god, she only exists if she's worshipped. It's not like our god. He will be worshipped. He will be glorified in all the cosmos, period. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I just want you to try to imagine a group of people gathered in the capital, whipped up into a frenzy, rioting. Just use your sanctified imagination if you can do such a thing. These people whose power bases are threatened, their, their economic structures are threatened. I just want you to just imagine, I know it's hard, just, just go with me. What would that might be like? Just, just, just try. When they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. This would have been horrifying. This is at least 25,000 people rush from the Agora, the sort of the civic square, and they grab these two dudes and they rush into the arena. 25,000 strong. These people who were somewhat religious, some of whom were slightly buzzword compliant, some of whom were familiar with the name of Jesus, some were familiar with the teaching of Paul, but most of them didn't actually know Jesus. 
That's instructive. Verse 30, but when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Nah, dude, that's a bad idea. There are 25,000 ticked off folks in there. You do not want to go in there. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are the super rich uh, financiers and influencers, the industrialists of Ephesus, who were friends of his. That's interesting. Paul was friend with the little and the large, both. The up and out were just as out as the down and out. Paul went to both of them who were friends of his, he, they sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. It's funny how that often happens, right? And then listen to what Luke says. And most of them did not know why they had come together. <laughs> yeah. Verse 33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd, but they recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, Hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They would not let him speak because he was less than. So they had this two hour chant service for Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk, this is kind of like the, uh, the COO or the CFO of the town, he finally comes in and he settles them all down. He quieted the crowd. He said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Oh, that's information. The sacred stone that fell. This is fact. We know that this is true because it's been handed down to us. This is fact. We just accept it. This is called traditionalism, which is convicting. What are the things that we just accept in our culture and context as just fact? That maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just traditionalism. Or some other form of syncretism where we mix and match all sorts of nationalism or economics or other things. William Larkin says, any Christianity worth its salt will always be a threat to the pocketbook and the flag. That's convicting. Verse 38, if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint... Oh, sorry, verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Verse 38. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. This guy thinks there's nothing to fear. We know what truth is. We have Artemis. Why are you worried about these guys? They're nobodies. And Luke is telling us that power the force to make something happen is breaking out because the dawn of the church. Verse 39, but if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is what was going on in Ephesus. A little later, Paul will depart. He'll make some rounds and go up through Macedonia and come back through. And instead of going back to Ephesus, he will meet them on the coast and kneel with them on the beach and pray and weep with them and say, you will never see my face again. Paul loved these people. He goes away, goes to Israel, challenges the power base and the power structures there, gets arrested, taken to Rome from where he writes this letter to the Ephesians, which again, Lord willing, we're gonna spend the rest of the semester unpacking this glorious, glorious letter. Just in way of landing this morning, let me see if I can apply this very briefly, and then we'll conclude. I want to remind us that power is the force to make something happen. I used to sing that old song in my little home church growing up. There's power, power, wonder, work, and power in me. Remember that song? Just me? Okay, that's fine. That's all right. 
It's a great song. There's power, power, wonder, work, and power. And there is. And power is the force to make something happen. And one of the things that we're going to see again and again is that in and through the church, God's doing things. So three quick things just to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and Acts chapter 19. Number one goes like this. Apart from grace, there can be no peace. I think sometimes even we as Christians, we believers, we forget that. Just like these disciples in Ephesus. We strive and we try and we have all these things held back. But apart from grace, there can be no peace. In other words, what is the power that can bring peace? Only grace. To put a finer point on it, means that no human solution can ever solve our human problem. It must come from an outside, greater source. So much of our striving culturally or communally or governmentally or economically or socially is a macro attempt to achieve peace. Nations do it. Cities do it. Churches do it. Families do it. Individuals do it. We all want peace, but it can only come through the receipt of grace. We all want power, the force to make something happen, in this case to achieve peace. But only God has that power. And here's the gospel. He's using it. He's doing it. He is effecting. He is bringing peace. And so that leads to our second point of application. God is getting it done. We need to be reminded of that. In the midst of all the other turmoil and tumult, God is getting it done. This is why Paul wrote Ephesians, to remind them that God was doing a new thing in the world, and astonishingly, through them, the church. See, power is the force to make something happen. God has that power, and he was making it happen in Ephesus. He was using the very ones who used to be enemies, now as emissaries. That's incredible. That's what the church does. It brings those who are far from God at enmity with God. We'll look at that later on in Ephesians 1 and 2. And he makes them actual ambassadors of his kingdom. Paul sat in Rome, imprisoned by the Roman Empire because of he had threatened the systems of Jewish power in Israel. But now, he's shining a light on what real power is and who actually has it. Third point, it goes like this, and this may or may not Sit well with some, that's okay. You can email Mike Hall, that's Mike at Bethelbible.com. <laughs> Third point goes like this the gospel will never leave people indifferent. If we're articulating giving the gospel correctly, people will either respond and they will cling to it as though it's a life raft in the open sea, or it will develop all kinds of conflict and tumult. It never leaves anybody indifferent. When the truth goes out, Satan's structures do not stand. Now, here's a very interesting thing that we see in Acts 19. Paul's in Ephesus in Acts 19, in the shadow of the temple of Diana, Artemis worship. They are the keepers of this false, horrible, pagan religion. Does Paul hate it? Yes. Does Paul call for and advocate the tearing down of the temple? Never. You know what Paul does? He holds up Jesus over and over and over again. The name of Jesus. Because he has power. He doesn't try to debate whether Artemis and that meteor thingy with all the grotesque images on it was the thing or not. That's not the point. That's irrelevant. It's the gospel. He holds up Jesus. Are we to work and to, to strive to serve? Of course, of course, of course. But we must always give the gospel. 
follow the model that Luke gives us of Paul in Ephesus, the heart of darkness, we might say. This is Thomas Chalmers famously said, what Paul continued to do was give them the expulsive force of a new and greater affection. This is what you used to love. This is what you used to cling to. But Jesus, and Jesus drove all those other things out because power is the force to make something happen. The gospel triumphs over ghastly and greedy power. And you and I have to have a plan to always have the glory of Christ before us. Or we have a tendency to shrink. Our awe leaks. And we have a tendency to to hold back things just in case of a rainy day, just in case of a pinch, just in case God doesn't come through. And then God calls us to burn those bridges, to not rely on anything other than him because he alone has power. Power is the force to make something happen. We're going to conclude with this. And just as an invitation, as we start the spring 2021 semester, some of you may be here on the third floor on watching at home. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You know about the Jesus that Paul preached or the Jesus that we talk about in church. But maybe you don't know him. You're just sort of familiar with him. I invite you to believe that Jesus is who he says he was and he did what he said he would do. And that you would dare to ask God if it's true that he came to save you. We already know the answer. And we pray that you would have boldness and courage to approach any of us to ask those questions and to, to be led into a saving knowledge of Jesus. Some of us, maybe, you know an awful lot about him, but he's been little more than a good luck charm. I invite you to see that he alone has power and that you would continue to join in with this church with all of our campuses as we endeavor to give the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another because that's the power, the force to make something happen. So that's our prayer for this spring semester. I'm going to invite you to pray with me and then we'll have another song and worship together and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this word, for the openings of this little letter to the church at Ephesus and ultimately to us. God, we thank you for the time this morning. We pray that you would use it to continue to make much of the name of Jesus in all of our contexts. Father, I pray if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, that you would move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son. And for the rest of us, Father, would you undo whatever power structures are preventing us from living in our identity in Christ. Father, I pray that by the time we finish this book, all of us will be further galvanized, deeper, living in our identity of being in Christ. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.